Good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, if you haven't opened it yet, please open it up to Ecclesiastes, uh, the first chapter. Uh, We're in verses 12 through 18 that were just read for us this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but one of the greatest challenges in life is understanding one another, right? And then uh, in in turn, kind of really looking out at all of life and trying to make sense and understand life itself. Uh, But just think about understanding one another. I mean, uh, all it takes is trying to have a conversation with a two- or a three-year-old, and you quickly realize, man, I need an interpreter, you know? Uh, Many times growing up with our kids, there'd be, you know, consistently just words and phrases used, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're asking me right now. Uh, Iconically, uh, my oldest, when he was really young, uh, one day continually asked me for W.A.s. He wanted W.A.s over and over again, and I just was getting stressed out, anxious, not knowing what he's asking me for. I'm grabbing everything I can imagine, trying to, is this it? Is this what you want? Is this it? Finally, I don't know at what point we realized what he was asking, but he was wanting strawberries. And so, um, man, I mean, but really, I'm like, W.A.s, strawberries, that's not at all even the same thing. But from that moment on, if he asked for W.A.s, and someone's like, what in the heck is that? We're like, oh, he wants strawberries, right? We're an interpreter. And that starts at a young age, trying to understand kids from a very small age, but that advances easily into our adulthood. And as we try to have these relationships with one another, we're consistently trying to make sense and understand each other, how each other sees the world. We want to understand how the other person might see the world, or we see people behaving differently than we do. And we try to make sense of that. And so we often wish we could understand why people say what they say, think what they think, behave the way they behave, and then there's just kind of making sense of life itself, right? We're driven to a place often where we think things like, man, if I only knew about this, if I just had understanding about this thing, you know, there's that fill-in-the-blank sort of stuff. I mean, how do we make a lifetime of hard work with really little or nothing to show for it at the end. Like, how can I make sense of the pain and suffering that we've endured lately? Uh, Why did cancer strike our family? You know, why is it that after all my hard work as a parent, my child is is the one turning their back on God? I mean, why did God let my parents get divorced? You know, why did he let my loved one die? Like, what do I do with that? That's fill in the blank stuff, right? That's, if I could just make sense of this, if I understood this, then maybe I'd understand life. Don't you think that if you could just have enough knowledge, right, if you could just have enough wisdom to understand life's most difficult people and life's most difficult questions, that your problems, you might not be as naive to say they'd be solved, but you'd be closer to solving them. Don't you kind of think that way? It kind of makes me think of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, The author of that book is Douglas Adams, and he writes about a supercomputer named Deep Thought. Uh, And Deep Thought is this supercomputer that's tasked with determining, quote, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Pretty easy task. Uh, But it takes this computer named Deep Thought seven and a half million years to finally do all of its computations and give the final result to the answer to that great question, what is the answer to everything? And the computer's answer to the meaning of life was 42. It's 42. 
uh, someone yells at the computer and says, 42, is that all you've got to show for seven and a half million years of work? And this should be on the screen, but Deep Thought responds by saying, I checked it very thoroughly, and that quite definitely is the answer. I think this is good. He says, I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question is. Today, uh, this preacher in Ecclesiastes, he's going to begin this search for meaning. And in these first seven verses today, he gives us this introduction that really goes through the rest of the book, but, but more tightly, it's going to go through the end of chapter two, where he does all these searches and all these tests. But here, if you've ever done a research project before, this is kind of his abstract of the research project in these first seven verses. He begins by wondering, if I could just understand the ways of the world, if I could have wisdom itself, then maybe I'll find the meaning I'm looking for. And what we discover is that he comes up empty because he isn't asking the right question. He's missed the question altogether. So this is what we want us to see. This should be on the screen. First of all, in these first 12 through 15 uh, verses here, verses 12 through 15, the question I want to ask is, is meaning found in understanding life? In verses 16 through 18, is meaning found in acquiring human wisdom? And then third, uh, you could probably assume what the answers are to those questions. Uh, Third one is just, well, what then? What then? What's the question we should be asking? You know, what use is wisdom, since that's what he's talking about? So first, let's look in these first few verses. Is meaning found in understanding itself? Read with me again, starting in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So the preacher says that he's applied his mind, he's applied his heart uh, to, quote, seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. If you remember last week, the conclusion that he drew to start his whole book uh, is found in verse 3 because he, he, he draws out this great question, from all the toil at which they toil under the sun, what is there to be gained? So Solomon is going to use his great wisdom, he's going to try several experiments to see if indeed everything is vanity, if it's, if it's that vapor, that puff of smoke that we talked about last week, where you go outside in the morning on a cold day and you breathe out and you see that little of air and you try to catch it. That's kind of what he's talking about again. Is, is there anything that is more substantial than that in this world? And so notice he begins his search, and his search, we're told, is sincere. And it's actually really comprehensive. Because look at what he says in verse 13, I applied my heart. That means his pursuit came from the center core of his very being. And then we have these words to seek and to search out in verse 13, and those are indicating the seriousness of his efforts. He wanted to understand life, not just one part of life, but life taken as a whole. So suffice it to say, he wants to know everything about everything under the sun, right? That's his task, pretty simple. Also notice how he searches. What does it say? He searches by wisdom. All right, so this is telling you that he searched out this big quest 
to understand everything about everything, and he's using the very best insight that this world has to offer, okay? Well, what's the result of his quest? What did he discover? What can we learn if we devoted our lives to the same task, if we could even have the kind of wisdom that Solomon actually has? Well, he comes up totally empty, right? It didn't add up to 42, okay? He describes the unhappiness and the empty-handedness of his efforts. You see that in verses 13 through 15. And we should be cautioned here because it's a little bit gloomy, okay? I'm not going to lie. He's a little bit of a Debbie Downer here. Uh, he writes, quote, it is an unhappy business, right? literally uh, evil business, that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. All right, so sooner or later in each of our lives, this is where we wind up. And this is discouraging because we all long to gain understanding and find meaning, and we all think that we will, right? Uh, Francis Schaeffer talks about our desire to find meaning. Uh, this should be on the screen. He talks about this longing that each of us have, and he wrote, all men have a deep longing for significance, a longing for meaning. No man, regardless of his theoretical system, is content to look at himself as a finally meaningless machine which can and will be discarded totally and forever. Right? We resonate with that. And even people who deny God's existence search for meaning in their own existence. And people think they're going to find it too. I think famously you can consider someone like the late famous astrophysicist Stephen Hawking who said this, it should be on the screen, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet on a very average star, but we can understand the universe. He thinks he can. I don't know if he did. Well, we can try to understand the universe, but the problem, Solomon says, is the very business of that quest will lead you to unhappiness. That's what he says. And let's just be honest, okay? We might struggle with this thought because look at who he attaches to this idea here. He attaches God to it, doesn't he? He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to you to be busy with, right? Who's given you this unhappy business? God has. And we know this, don't we, from Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered the world, what do we see? After they sinned, the earth was cursed by God, wasn't it? Right? And do you remember the first sin that even entered the world? Do you remember what it was? It was that they, Adam and Eve, they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yet they were tempted, weren't they? They were not content in their limited understandings. They wanted to be like God, so they ate. Right? So they ate. And sin entered the world, and as a result, their knowledge about their own sin even entered the world. And they felt shame, didn't they? So they made themselves clothes out of fig leaves, right? They made those outfits, and they hid from God, and in turn, God declared a curse upon all that He has made. God made the world crooked, right? We're going to see that. Right? In that same moment, we learned, though, of the incredible graciousness of God because He continually allowed them to live, right? But now their life would be a, a busy-feeling, unhappy business, Right? We would still eat, wouldn't we? But it would be by the sweat of our brow. Right? We would still be fruitful and multiply, which is what told, we were told to do. But it would be through the pains of childbirth. 
And some of you are like, yeah, right? Right, this may be a hard sentence here to accept, but what's important to see is that this verse in Ecclesiastes is actually exalting an aspect of God's character that you and I cannot miss. Because this is exalting the aspect of God's character that will not relieve Adam and Eve, it will not relieve humanity, and will not relieve you and me from the consequences of our sin. God is a just God. This is the God who governs us, right? He did not stop the unhappy business of our garden paradise that was lost. And we, you and I, we really need to linger here. We do, because we realize now that God will not bring salvation to us by giving us some escape or some immunity from the now-cursed world. That's not how salvation will come. And so his search led him to unhappiness, but he also says that it led him to emptiness. You see that in verse 17. He says it's like running around in your yard trying to catch the wind with your hands. If you were to try that today and people didn't know what you're doing, they're probably going to pull you aside and say, you should probably take a nap, right? Like you should do something. You need help in some capacity, right? Because we all understand that, that if I'm going to try to catch air, catch the wind, if I'm going to herd the wind, which is kind of an image here used, it's kind of like herding cats that you can't even see, right? It's just, it's not going to be possible. And let's not forget the person who's saying this, because Solomon was a king, and not only a king, he was the greatest king of the most powerful nation in the world at the time of his reign. All right, so think about who's saying this. Do you see, even the most wise and powerful person in the world cannot fix the world. That's his proverb in verse 15. Do you see it? What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. We cannot change the world as it is. That's what he says. There there is no understanding. There is no power we can gain to change it. It is what it is. Why? This should be on the screen. If you read later in the book of Ecclesiastes, this same phrase comes up again in verse 13 of that chapter. It says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Right there it is again. See, because of the curse, guys, we have tornadoes. Right? We have hurricanes. We have COVID. We have cancer. And Paul speaks of this groaning in creation in the book of Romans chapter 8. He says that creation was subjected to vanity, to that right? This vanity raises many questions for us that we just cannot answer in life. We can understand all these crooked things and how to make them straight. I mean, why do tornadoes destroy homes on one side of the street, not the other? Why does cancer affect your family, but not theirs? You know, how do you make sense of these things? We cannot make straight what has been made crooked. We can only hope, like Paul does in Romans chapter 8, when he says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and decay. And so his proverb continues, and he says what? What is lacking cannot be counted. This is basically saying, if you have no money, what's the use in counting it? You have nothing to count, right? It's like the old English uh, phrase, is it, right? You don't count your chickens before they hatch. I've never owned chickens, but I imagine. It makes sense to me still. I don't need to have chickens to know. Like, I can't count them if I don't have them, right? It's the whole point. What is he saying? There's nothing to add up. It's futile. It's an empty pursuit. The whole search is vanity, right? It's trying to catch wind in your hands. Do you see what he's saying here? 
if you were to understand everything, if you were to understand everything, it wouldn't fundamentally change anything. And we think it will. If you understood everything, like everything, it fundamentally wouldn't change anything. It's a pretty sober reality, a reality that we don't want to face. And we see humanity, apart from God's gracious activity and wisdom, trying to spin our wheels and trying hard to make straight what's been crooked, to count what we don't even have to count. He's saying that apart from God's intervention, we cannot right what is wrong with this world. Taking both parts of this proverb together, life is what it is, and there is nothing we can do to fix it. So Solomon says, after my search, I've discovered that the human plight is unfixable. So is meaning found in just understanding everything? Not at all. What is crooked cannot be made straight. Well, maybe we should listen to deep thought. Maybe we aren't asking the right question. So the second thing, though, is he goes, well, is meaning found in acquiring wisdom? That's his next search. Right? From the search of all things by wisdom, he moves to just examining wisdom itself. What does it say in verse 16? I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much vex- wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I wonder if you could become the wisest person who's ever lived. If that was your dream, why would you want to be that wise? Why would you want to be that wise? I mean, I bet if I asked every single one of you, we had that private conversation and I was like, do you want to become a wise person? Everybody would be like, of course, count me in. That's great, right? That's a good thing. But why do you want to be wise? Why would you want to be wise? We see here that the search the preacher goes on is to know wisdom. And to know the difference between wisdom and foolishness, he wants to know the difference. And to, the amazing thing is, is that he has acquired what most of us would sit here today and say, I wish I could acquire. But he says, I have acquired it. Right? Look in verse 16. He has acquired great wisdom, it says. How great? So great that his wisdom surpassed all who were before him, and God himself says all who were past him, right, who would follow him. You could read about this account in 1 Kings chapter 3. This should be on the screen. We have God who says to Solomon, he says, ask me what you want, basically. What would you ask God for? Curious. I thought about that this week. But Solomon ultimately answers, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who's able to govern this, your great people? And we see that God is pleased with this. Your desire for wisdom is a good desire. God's pleased with that, right? Wisdom is very, very useful. But then it says in verse 12, what does God say? He says, behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So suffice it to say, Solomon has acquired great wisdom, okay? Furthermore, his heart says he's even had the great experience of wisdom and knowledge, right? What does that mean? Well, it means that he's actually used it in real life, right? He's seen it at work. 
you can read about that. I mean, there's some really amazing stories uh, in First Kings, especially chapter 3, the one right after this, where two women are fighting over whose baby they, they have. You just go read it today. It's really fun. But uh, I don't have time for that right now, but I wish I did. Uh, so in these two verses, the word wisdom is used three times. So he wants to know precisely how wisdom is different than foolishness. And that seems to us like a really valuable, like a beneficial thing to have in life. That would help, wouldn't it? What was the result of his search? Did knowing the difference between wisdom and foolishness help him find meaning in life? Is this where he finally could get some of that gain that he can't find? Well, not at all. He says, seeking to understand wisdom itself itself leaves you empty-handed. It's that same chasing of the wind in your backyard thing. So he says in verse 17, what does he mean? Look at the proverb in verse 18. What does he say? In much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Now, I know you're all pretty sophisticated people, more so than I am. I haven't used the word vexation in a sentence in a long time. I don't know if that's just randomly come out of your mouth, um, but uh, in case it hasn't, you know, uh, the word vexation just means to be irritated, right? Annoyed, uh, even provoked to anger. Just kind of that emotion you have, you're like, ugh, you know? Just so frustrated. And he says, much wisdom brings that, ugh, to your life. Isn't that interesting? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you want human wisdom? Okay. Just know that human wisdom brings with it much frustration. Because the world does not seem to make sense. Right? Even worse, knowledge, discernment or understanding, it increases your sorrow as your knowledge increases. Because in gaining knowledge, you become more aware of the pain and suffering in this world. This should be on the screen, but um, Phil Riken says, if we take a secular perspective, again, like under the sun, which is what Solomon's doing here, kind of divorced from God, if we take a secular perspective, trying to understand the world on our own terms rather than on God's terms, we will never escape Ecclesiastes 1. Study all the philosophy, research all the religion, take all the personal improvement courses, and it will still end in frustration and vexation. Right? Haven't we all experienced that, like in some way? You gain understanding, finally, only to face brand new questions that you weren't even asking before. Your, your knowledge increases, and you realize that in gaining new information, you just learned about more brokenness in this world. And in that information coming into your mind now, you realize you can't even do anything about it. So as your knowledge increases, what increases with it? Well, your sorrow, right? Our Western world is built upon this aspiration, isn't it, of having wisdom and knowledge. We've developed technology that lets us in on information that is happening in real time all over the world. Right? We have knowledge of very specific and personal life experiences of people that we will never meet and never know about places that we will never set foot. Yet we are constantly wanting to know more and more and more and more. Our knowledge is increasing and so is our sorrow. So is our vexation. I mean, this is showing us that knowing in and of itself is not where meaning is found. Right? Yet you ask someone on the street today, man, look at the world. What do you think is going to fix this world? People are universally going to tell you, we need better education. That's what we need. 
We just need better education. Now, education is extremely important and useful. I mean, as Christians, we fundamentally value education. I mean, even the, the structures of the uh, education system that we have was birthed out of Christianity. Right? So we value education, but it isn't enough, and we know that. We know that. Education only increases our sorrow and vexation, but you're not going to see any university try to woo you to their university by saying, come to, I won't say a university, but come to, you know, I'll say the ducks, right? Come to University of Oregon and increase your vexation and sorrow, right? No one is going to use that as their slogan, are they? Right? Right? Who would do that? So why is wisdom itself not the answer? Because it's pointing you, it's not pointing you to the right question. Well, what then? If what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted, and if wisdom just brings vexation, and the increase of knowledge increases your sorrow, well, then what? Is ignorance just bliss, right? Should you just go and hide, retreat from the world? I mean, if wisdom and knowledge itself is just that puff of air and is the equivalent of you running around in your yard today trying to catch the wind, where does that leave you? Well, his search has left him empty-handed because he's asked the wrong question, right? It's like the guy in Hitchhikers. What do you mean 42? I mean, this is Solomon the one who in verse 16, we're told, acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were before him. The one who we read in 1 Kings chapter 10 that the queen of Sheba heard of and traveled miles and miles just to hear him talk. So if Solomon, the wisest person to ever live, says to us, I have thoroughly studied life, and the predicament that all of humanity finds itself in, the predicament that you find yourself in this morning, is what I've discovered. I've studied it. And I have determined that it is unfixable. What hope do we have? Well, if the only part of the Bible we had was verses 12 through 18, we would just despair of life itself, wouldn't we? Right? We, we would have no hope. I mean, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Not even wisdom itself can accomplish it. Man is not smart enough. Understanding is not enough, right? We aren't smart enough, wise enough, powerful enough to make it straight. And if this is our reality, if there is no escape from what is under the sun, then our only hope will have to come from somewhere beyond the sun, right? I mean, if no one can make straight what God has made crooked, then only God can fix the plight we're in. And that's exactly what he's done. See, God himself has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, the Son of God, will come and he will personally squint under the sun. He, he will sweat beneath the sun's heat. He will enter into the gainless, crooked world and endure its vanity and feel its frustration. Right? He was no escapist. He was not a blind optimist. He said this to people. He walked up to them and he said, in this world you will have trouble. Right? He would say things like, the poor will always be with you. So if you take some of the things that Jesus said, you would think he's ripping off Ecclesiastes. He sounds like the preacher, doesn't he? 
He's very honest. He's very real about life, right? But then Jesus will go much further than the preacher could ever go. And so we find in Matthew chapter 12, when some people ask Jesus for a sign to prove that he was actually special, to prove that he was the one that everyone has been waiting for, to prove that he was the Messiah, this is what he said. It should be on the screen. He said, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. Right? Jesus is much greater than Solomon. How? How? Well, in many ways, but fundamentally, he's greater than Solomon because Jesus came and chose to stand beneath the sun with us. And in doing so, he looks at you in the eye and he says, yes, in this world you will have trouble. But he then says to you what Solomon could never say to you, nor anybody could ever say to you. Because he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. So you have to ask the question, how did Jesus overcome the world? And Paul answers that in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says what? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. It doesn't mean that God is foolish at all, because God never has a foolish moment. He never has a bad day. He doesn't have an off day, like you and I have many of. It's just saying, if God could ever be foolish, which he couldn't, well, that would still be far beyond your greatest moment of wisdom. Out of all the wisdom that could be accumulated in this world. And what is Paul getting at? He's getting at the fact that God in his infinite wisdom planned for Jesus to overcome the world. How? Through the cross, which he says is not wisdom to the world, but it's actually foolishness to the world. This should be on the screen. He says in verse 20 and following, where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, which is what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel, right? To save those who believe. You guys, do you see this? Jesus is far better than even the wise Solomon because Jesus wasn't simply wise. He wasn't simply the wisest even. First Corinthians says Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is wisdom incarnate, and the wisdom of God drove him to lay his life down in death. Why? Because in Jesus' death, he makes the crooked straight. His death points us to our deepest question. His death is like the 42 answer from deep thought. To most of us, it's foolishness. But if you can see it, it is the wisdom of God. Because how did crookedness even enter the world? It was in our wanting to be like God. It was in our turning our back on Him. It was wanting that knowledge divorced from Him. And so the wisdom of God is to die so that you could be brought back into that reconciled relationship with God. The answer to life's biggest question is only found in being reconciled to your gracious creator, and that's what Jesus, the wisdom of God, that's what his death actually did. 
So we can search for meaning by the world's wisdom, but we will only be left frustrated, annoyed, angry, filled with sorrow. But if you are humble enough to admit that you are not wise enough to fix your own plight and to make straight the crookedness of the world, but instead if you look to Jesus and believe in him and say, you are wisdom incarnate, then you, my friend, you have found the secret to the great mystery that even the wise Solomon could not find out. You have found the meaning of life. This week, uh, last Friday, in fact, marked the 57th year anniversary of Jim Elliott's martyrdom, who was a missionary in South America. He met Jesus, the wisdom of God, that the wisest thing he could spend his time doing was going to an obscure tribe of people that he didn't know, didn't talk like him, look like him, didn't even really welcome him, so much so that they killed him, that he thought that was the way I should spend my life. And he wasn't wrong. It should be on the screen, but he said this. He said, I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. I mean, how could his death be meaningful? I mean, how could Jim Elliot live a full life like Jesus and die at such a a young age? I mean, Jesus' life, 33-year-old carpenter died in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, lived a full life, died a death that the world says, that's foolish. Why would I not just be repulsed by it, but even believe in that, as if that's my hope in this world? Well, Jim knew the meaning of life. He knew Jesus was the wisdom of God and provided the answer to life's greatest question, how can the crooked be made straight? Only God can do that. And God has. God has. See, wisdom that won't leave you vexed and add to your sorrows. You guys, it's found at the cross. It's the only place Right where the man of sorrows made a straight path back into the arms of your creator. You see, even if, if we'll never understand all that's done in this world, you guys, we have hope. Even if you don't understand everything. And there, I'll be honest, there's a lot of things that just don't make sense to me in terms of how this world works or doesn't work. Uh, I've tried to reflect on that a little bit this week, but I mean, I'll never understand why I have two chronic diseases. I don't, I won't understand that. I'll never understand why my friend Nicole died at the age of 17 in a car crash in high school. I mean, I'll, I looked at a lot of you this year, the way that you've suffered. Well, you know, I, I don't understand. There are a lot of serious questions. But when we approach those questions with an awareness of the God who sent his son into the world to redeem it, we might not have answers, but we have hope.
this world is upside down and broken, it's gonna raise hard questions. And we need godly wisdom to wrestle with those questions. But that wisdom will point us to the cross. That's what it'll do. And if you're not being pointed there, I'm sorry to tell you that's, that's not wisdom. It's just not. On the night that Jesus was handed over to be crucified, he celebrated one last meal with his disciples. You've heard of that? And before that night, while Jesus shared his life with those disciples, they didn't always get it. They didn't see what Jesus was talking about. They didn't see where he was going. They certainly couldn't make sense of the cross. Some of them tried to even stop it from happening. Afterward, all of them ran away and hid. Even after his resurrection, many of them doubted. But Jesus speaks hope and peace into our doubts and fears. The hope and peace he purchased for scared and confused sinners on the cross. And it's that cross that we look back to where God dealt with our sin and he made the crooked straight. And he did it by pouring all that out on Jesus, that judgment for you and me. And looking back to the cross and the empty tomb, our eyes, you guys, then are redirected forward in hope to the return of him when he will come and create a new heaven and a new earth and he will bring it to all completion when all of our questions, they might not all be answered, but they will all fade away in the light of his glory. Because we will know God even as we are fully known. Jesus, the wisdom of God is the welcome of sinners, doubters, the disenchanted, and those who are scared. So if your search doesn't find its end in him, uh, you will be left vexed and filled with sorrow this morning. If your search ends with him, you won't be filled with all the answers, uh, but you will be filled with that peace and joy because you have found wisdom incarnate. And he is making the crooked straight. Let's all stand together. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and respond to God's word. Oh God, in our humility, we, we confess we do not understand. We do not know all there is to know. And we often prop ourselves up as so understanding and so wise. Yet, God, this morning, I pray you would teach us to run to the cross of Jesus, to see your wisdom there, to see the crooked that you've made straight in our lives. And I pray that we would humbly just praise you and rejoice. Maybe cling to that cross and see that uh, death of Jesus that was our death, his resurrection is our resurrection, and we claim that as our wisdom in this world. We love you, Lord. We ask you to make us wise. And that you do so that we would find our meaning in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.